Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is, uh, it, is thirst, it is water for those who are thirsty. It is everything that we need. And so we pray that you would fill us this morning. Fill us as we learn that our minds might be transformed, that we might become more like Jesus, that we would not just know better the things that you have done in history, but that we might be in awe of you, that we might worship you all the more. Lord, may you do all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, So, covenant theology. Who can tell me what a covenant is? It's been approximately 16 years since we've talked about covenant theology, so I know it's been a while. Um, But what is a covenant? Okay, it's a promise. Matthew? It's a contract with... Blessings and curses attached. Okay, a contract with blessings and curses attached. Sure. Joe, do you have anything to add? Is there a bond between two parties? Yeah, bond between two parties. Okay, anything else? There's certain Yeah, there are obligations that are made that the different sides agree to uphold. There's sanctions when you don't do your side of the bargain. There's blessings when you do do your side of the bargain. Um, it's a bond, it's a relationship. There's two parties, typically. Anything else you want to add to a covenant? Usually a covenant in, in blood. Okay, in blood. It's maybe not today, but in Scripture for sure, yes. There's ratifications of covenants which are typically attached with blood. The reason being, it's to seal the pact saying, may I become like this dead animal if I don't keep my side of the bargain. Are there any examples of covenants that we today practice and use? Yeah, marriage. That's a big one. Any others? In most contracts we sign, we prepare as a covenant. Absolutely. Yeah, if you sign on the dotted line, you're signing a covenant of sorts. Thankfully, we don't ratify it in blood anymore, but we ratify it with a signature, right? So your signature is on that piece of paper, that that mortgage, and that means that if you default, the bank can say, see, you signed here promising you would pay, you didn't pay, so we're going to take your house, right? It's a covenant. Um, So anything such as mortgages or business agreements, marriage, um, citizenship is a covenant, Right? You are in a covenant with America as a citizen um, to uphold its laws, to vote, to act in its best interests. And what happens if you, what happens if you give state secrets to China? You get paid? You, you get paid? <laughs> Not quite what I was expecting, but sure. Yeah, by whom? Um, what it, what will America do to you? Yeah, we'll put you in jail because you're a traitor. Right? You have broken a covenant. You have broken a loyalty. You've broken a bond. Um, so there's lots of different kinds of covenants that we partake in today, right? Things that we do, and most of them, like a mortgage, um, are works-based. 
Meaning, if you do this side of the bargain, here's the blessings that you get. If you pay off your mortgage, you do make your monthly payments, you get to keep your house. Right? If you fail, if you default on your loan, if you don't pay, you lose your house. All right, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. That's the foundation for most of our covenants today that we experience on a day-to-day basis. Um, scripture includes works-based covenants, right? But there's other kinds of covenants as well. Are there any other covenants in Scripture other than works-based? Someone say something? If it's not works, what is it? Grace. It's grace. And what is grace? Unmerited favor. Are there, is there another way that you could say that? Maybe to emphasize the fact that it's, it's not just that you didn't earn it, but that you've done the opposite of earning it? Faith-based. What was that? Faith-based. Faith-based, okay. Demerited. Demerited, yeah. Yeah, we had that discussion a long time ago, about typically reformed, we talk about grace as unmerited favor, but I pushed a little bit to say, well, we could also say demerited to emphasize the fact that it's not simply that we don't deserve it. But that's kind of neutral, right? It's like, well, I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's more the opposite. It's more like I've done everything to earn the curse. I have done everything to earn hell. And yet I'm receiving mercy. It's demerited favor. Um, so if there's works-based covenants and there's grace-based covenants, how do we know which one we're in? Yeah. Look at the terms of the covenant. Right? How do you get into the covenant? How do you stay in the covenant? How do you receive the blessings of the covenant? And we talked especially about um, the fact that in a workspace covenant, you are the one who has to fulfill the obligations. Right? You're the one upon whom the responsibilities fall. So take Adam in the garden. Right? Adam was responsible to fulfill the obligations of the covenant. Meaning, when God told him, don't eat of that tree, and then Adam ate of that tree, he broke the covenant. Because it was a works-based covenant. But what about in a grace-based covenant? Does anyone... Who, who, does, who do the responsibilities fall upon? God. Specifically, right, God is going to appoint someone to do it for you. In other words, there's a mediator. There are no mediators in workspace covenants because you are the person upholding the terms of the covenant. So what's a mediator? What does a mediator do? Is a mediator someone who's kind of like a neutral third party, kind of arbitrating between two opposing parties, finding a compromise? Is that what a mediator does? In some cases. In some cases, okay. What about biblically? What does a mediator in the Bible do? Dave? Okay. Okay. He takes man's place. 
In other words, he's not a neutral third party. A mediator, in the biblical sense, is for one of the parties. He acts on behalf of one of the parties. So he's not a neutral party trying to find a compromise. A biblical mediator is someone who stands in place of and takes upon himself the responsibilities on behalf of someone else. So when Jesus acts as our mediator, he is fulfilling the law, he's fulfilling the obligations of the covenant on your behalf. So that whatever happens to Jesus, happens to you. If God blesses Jesus, that means you'll be blessed. And if God judges or curses Jesus, you'll be cursed. Right? If, you, if Jesus obeys, it's as if you've obeyed. If Jesus disobeys, it's as if you disobeyed. And of course, Jesus was perfect. Jesus always obeyed. He never sinned. He never disobeyed. Which means, if you're in Jesus, it's as if you have always obeyed. That is credited to you as righteousness. That's because Jesus is a mediator. But what law was Jesus fulfilling? Okay, Mosaic Covenant Law. That is definitely part of it, yes. We've talked about that a lot with the Mosaic Covenant. But there's actually a covenant that stands behind all the other covenants of Scripture that Jesus was fulfilling. There's another works-based covenant that Jesus was fulfilling. Does anyone know what it's called? Covenant of Redemption. Yeah, our eternal covenant, the covenant that God made before he created everything. And so think about it like this. When did Jesus agree to come, become a human and live a perfect life and die on the cross and then be raised uh, to heaven in glory to be seated at the right hand of the Father and to rule forever in a human body? When did Jesus agree to do that? Was it right before he came? From eternity. Yeah, he had purposed this before he created everything. And so we call that the covenant of redemption, that the Trinity made a covenant within themselves. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made a covenant, a covenant of works, where the Son promised to to do this, to become a human, to live a perfect life, to be killed, to suffer on the cross, to be raised, and to ascend into glory. And to bring with him all the elect, right? To save the elect. So we call that the covenant of redemption. So Jesus was fulfilling a covenant of works when he came to earth. It was a covenant that he had made with the Father and the Spirit uh, before time began. And this covenant came with it the blessings, right? If Jesus obeys, what are the blessings? Well, the elect get to be saved. Jesus gets to receive the elect as his people. He buys them with a price, and he gets to have the name above every name and to rule in glory, and all the elect get to rule with him. So now we turn to history. Now we start looking at history to see how this covenant of redemption is played out uh, throughout all of human history. Because if this is the purpose, then all the other covenants are flowing into this purpose. So when God says in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, you will bear a son, the seed of the woman, and he shall crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent shall bruise his heel, that's not God's plan B. 
That's not God saying, okay, well, Adam messed everything up, so now we've got to come up with a backup. Right? Adam, you were supposed to be perfect, but you weren't, so now we have to come up with something else. No, this was God's plan. So in Genesis 3.15, when he promises a seed who will come, we know that that's the covenant of redemption, that God is promising to fulfill this covenant of redemption. He's saying Jesus is going to come, and he's going to be perfect and live for you and be your mediator. But in history, we don't know that yet. All Adam and Eve knew was there's going to be some guy, and he's going to do what I, Adam, should have done. That's what they know. And so throughout history, God begins to reveal his plan. He gets to peel back the layers and reveal what he's been planning all along. So every covenant that comes after is starting to answer questions about the promised seed. Starting to answer questions about what is God doing? What's his plan? What's going to happen? So we talked about this, um, especially as we began to talk about the Noahic covenant and, and further we saw how each covenant was starting to answer a question about the promised seed. Um, So when it came to the Noahic covenant, remember Noah, God sends a flood because the the whole earth is wicked and only Noah and his family are spared and God wipes out everybody else. But Noah and his family, they get to go into the ark. They get to survive. They get to pass through judgment and emerge on the other side. And then God makes this covenant between not just Noah, but God makes a covenant with the birds and the bees and the fish and the cows and the, and the spiders, unfortunately. But with all the creatures, with all creation, God makes a covenant and says, I will uphold the, um, the pattern of creation, days and months and years and seasons. I will uphold that until the time is done, right? Until it's time to stop. What question is the Noahic Covenant answering? Why did God give the Noahic Covenant? What is... I'm sorry, Matthew, go ahead. It's because of the fall, God promised that God mm-hmm. This is a promise that salvation will come eventually. Because as you said, this is a common grace holding postponement of the penalty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is um, the Lord saying... Death is reigning, but I'm going to I'm going to pr- keep this creation going until redemption can happen. Did I see your, your hand up? Okay. What else? Is there anything else that the New Age Covenant was was answering? What else does it do? In other words, what are the threats that the promised seed is facing? Extinction. Now, by two routes. One route is God's judgment, right? And so Matthew just answered that, that the Noahic Covenant says God is going to postpone judgment until the promised seed can come. Redemption will happen. Eternal damnation will not come yet. It will be postponed. So that's one threat, is what if God decides to judge the world before the seed has time to come and bring redemption? Because man is wicked. Wickedness was increasing. Like The fact that there was only one family on the globe that God considered worth saving tells you something about how bad humanity was. But there's another threat to the promised seed. What's the other threat? It's extinction as well, but from a different angle. Wickedness 
What if the serpent swallows up the seed before the seed has time to come? What if the serpent wins? Because there's enmity, right? That's what God said in Genesis 3 was, I will put enmity between your seed and the serpent's seed. They'll be at war. And how do we know that the serpent won't win? The Noahic Covenant. God promises creation will continue. And that's a promise that the serpent won't win. He won't have time. He won't be able to destroy the world. He won't be able to... Wickedness won't win in the end. But God will win. So we talked about how the Noahic Covenant... It is a common grace covenant, which means it's to the all creation. It's not just for the elect. It's for everybody. But the, the Noahic Covenant provides the space for grace to operate. It sets the boundaries of creation and the world so that God can work his grace for the elect. The Noahic Covenant provides the space for grace to operate. And then we have a long period of time, and then a guy called Abram shows up, and God says, hey, stop living in Ur. It's a dumb name for a city anyways. Come out, and I'm going to give you a better place. Um, And he creates this covenant with Abraham. Um, What does the Abrahamic covenant teach us about the seed of the woman? What does it teach us about the seed of the woman, this covenant? What question is it answering? Whose whose kid will he be? Where from whom will he come from? What does it teach us about the seed of the serpent? Because remember, how many sons did Abraham have? Two. Two. Okay. How many? <laughs> how many sons? Did God make, did, how many sons of Abraham did God bless? Right, two. He blessed Ishmael as well. But Ishmael was not, even though he was Abraham's offspring, he was not a child of promise. God said, I will not make my covenant with Ishmael. I'm making my covenant with Isaac specifically. So it actually teaches us that the seed of the serpent is, is parallel. Right? There's two Two lines now, two defined lineages that both come from Abraham. One, Isaac, and the other, Ishmael. Ishmael had 12 sons. There was 12 tribes that came from Ishmael. Ishmael bore mighty kings. God blessed Ishmael and said, from you, many kings will come. You're going to have a lot of kids. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to have a lot of prosperity and things. But it was a... It was a to set up two lines, right? The seed of the serpent and the seed of the, of, the, of the woman that will be at enmity. And Ishmael and Isaac were at war. And their children were at war. And I think they continue to be at war today. So the Abrahamic covenant show, teaches us these things and answers that question, right? From whom is the promised seed going to come? Is it Ishmael? No, it's Isaac. And then along comes the Mosaic Covenant and just kind of seems to throw everything up in the air with regard to the promises that God made to Abraham. Because God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. Kings are going to come from you. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations. All these things. And then... And this is a promise that God makes, right? This is a covenant of grace that God makes. Because who walks through the slain animals? 
God. Yeah, the blood of the animals only touches God's feet. It doesn't touch Abraham's feet. Abraham is fast asleep. Right? He's getting a little power nap. And God says, I'm not only taking upon myself the responsibilities for my side of the bargain. I'm taking your side of the bargain as well. So that if, even if you fail, if, even if you break the covenant, I will be punished. I will take upon myself the curse of the covenant. But then Moses, the covenant with Moses comes along and God says, do this and live. Don't do this and die. If you want to stay in the land, obey. But if you disobey, you will be kicked out of the land. So why is God doing this? Why did God institute the Mosaic Covenant? Is God saying, you know, it used to be promises to Abraham, but in fact, I'm changing my mind. It's not going to be unconditional promises anymore. Now you're going to have to pull your side of the bargain. You're going to have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Is that what God is doing? Destroying the promises? Charlie's shaking his head emphatically, which is good. He's not. So what is God doing? Matthew? Okay. God wants to show us that we can't fulfill our side of the bargain, but how does he do that? Okay. Well, back up a step. How does, how does God show us that we can't fulfill it? Was the law meant to be fulfilled by us, basically? No. It was a picture of what it takes. Charlie? Right, but we make the distinction that the Mosaic Covenant wasn't a covenant of works like 
you are my son, and these are what my sons do. Let's let's pull back just a little bit. Um, I appreciate what you, you guys are saying. Just to kind of let's clarify and just make it simple, um, because what I'm really trying to get at is what's the purpose, not necessarily like okay, was it was it purely works, was it purely grace? Like the purpose, I think, was to point us to Jesus, right? It was to teach us what is Jesus going to do, and that's why God gave a law. Because he's showing us that this is what it takes to, to be saved. It's perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. You have to do it. You have to do it forever. And you have to be perfect at it. Or you're going to die. That's, that's it. And Israel learned on the very first night of the covenant of Moses that they fail. They made golden calf, a golden calf, right away, which, as one of my professors said, is like Israel committing adultery on their wedding night. God's saying, here's the bar, and Israel's failed immediately. So what should God have done? said, okay, never mind. No more covenant, no more land, no more nothing, because you've already broken it. That's what he could have said. Instead, he said, all right, you failed. Um, Let's try again. Let's try again and over and over and over and over and over again because every time that Israel breaks the covenant, right, God is supposed to exile them, but God doesn't. The reason is because He's not teaching them that they have to obey, He's teaching them that they can't obey, that they need a mediator, they need someone to come in and do it for them. Um, And that's how it points us to Jesus. So the Mosaic Covenant, we spent. Ten weeks, I'm pretty sure, talking about it because it's it's huge, right? It's a huge covenant, and it has roots throughout all the Old Testament. But the purpose is always to push us to say, who is the promised seed, and what is he going to do? So that's that's where I'm really pushing it. Um, because then, in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. God says, if you fail, you'll be kicked out of the land. Deuteronomy 4. You're going you're gonna to break my covenant. I call, God says in Deuteronomy 4, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. They haven't even gone into the land yet. And God is saying, you're all, you're, you've already broken it. You're going to break it again. I'm going to exile you. Like before Israel even gets to the land, God is already telling them that they're going to be exiled. That they're already going to lose the land of Canaan because of their disobedience. So you could say, well, is then God just abusing Israel? Is this all just to... To satisfy a power trip, does God? Why did God let them enter this covenant if He knew that they were just going to break it? Well, again, this points us not to ourselves. This forces us to say, if we're going to have any sort of standing before God, it cannot depend on our works. Because if even a tiny bit depends on us, we're doomed. So we need something else. And so that's what the Mosaic Covenant is pushing us towards. 
It's, it's exerting pressure on us to say we need a mediator. We need grace. We need mercy. Um, and so we need a different kind of covenant than the Mosaic covenant. And so that's where we're going. Is the Mosaic covenant, we've talked about a lot. We talked about the Davidic covenant um, for a week. We're going to talk about the exile for five to ten minutes. And then we're going to briefly introduce the new covenant because that's where we're going. That's where scripture is hurtling towards like a freight train is. There's a new covenant coming. It's on the horizon now. Like all of human history has been leading up to, the, to when the seed is going to show up. And the Mosaic covenant is, is crumbling and shattering. But the, the promised seed is on the horizon. He's almost here. So that's where we're moving. Because that's where scripture is drawing us and pushing us. But first, things are going to get bad. Before the seed shows up, things are going to get really bad. Because even at Israel's height, even at the very pinnacle of Israel's power, majesty, glory, and wealth, things are already starting to look bad. The cracks are already starting to form. Think about David. Here is a king after God's own heart. Arguably one of the, if not the best king that Israel has ever had. No one even comes close to David. In fact, all the future kings are judged by how, if they're like David or not. And yet, David, as he became older, things fell apart. And it's not just Bathsheba, which we all know. We all know that story of David and Bathsheba and his, his sin. Um, but the consequences of that, it starts to break apart the foundation. And as soon as the cracks start to form in the foundation of a house, it's not going to just fix itself. It's just going to get worse. His incident with Bathsheba... All right, the Lord gives him grace. The Lord hears his prayer for forgiveness, just Psalm 51. But there's going to be division now in David's house. Solomon is born right, to Bathsheba, but another son, Absalom, is going to start to create division. And now there's a rift within David's own family, a rift that David fails to properly address. A rift that grows more and more and more until Absalom stages a coup and tries to dethrone his father. David flees because things are starting to to break apart. Um, And then tragedy hits, right? The the story is really, really hard to read as a dad because this is his son who is attacking him and, and he's fighting with his own son. But when the time comes for the war to be fought, right? David doesn't want his son to die. He doesn't want Absalom killed. And yet, someone kills Absalom. And David weeps. and says, Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And David was never really the same. And even when Solomon became king, he prayed a great prayer. Lord, give me wisdom. And the Lord did. And Solomon's reign was arguably the height of Israel's wealth. 
right? Their, their land is, is increasing. They, are, they have all this wealth flowing in. Um, the nations are, are recognizing and paying tribute to Solomon. They're coming to him and, and saying, this is amazing, right? The Lord has blessed you so much. This is the height, right? This is the pinnacle, the peak. And yet, Solomon strayed further and further from God. And not just his idol worship, right? We all know how many wives he had, which is 699 too many. Um, but even as he was doing this, it wasn't just the idol worship. It was the fact that he was enslaving Israel. But he was putting Israelites to forced labor. So when his son comes up, Right, his son Rehoboam, Solomon dies, Rehoboam is going to take the throne. And the people come to Rehoboam and say, abolish Solomon's slavery. Free us from this forced labor. And Rehoboam says, all right, let me go talk to my, to my dudes. And he's got two different people talking in his ear. He's got the old guys who say, abolish it. It's wrong and you will gain the people's heart if you do that. And then there's all his frat bros who, are all, who just got back from their kegger. And they're like, no, dude, totally make it worse. And Rehoboam's like, that sounds great, right? I'm going to make it worse. You think that my dad was bad? Guess what? It's going to be triple under me. Rehoboam is stupid because this splits the kingdom in half. And not just in half, actually. It splits the kingdom completely. Ten tribes break away. There's only twelve. And one of them doesn't have land. One of them is just Levi. But ten of them break away. And only one tribe is left to follow Rehoboam, the tribe of Judah. And the only reason that tribe still follows Rehoboam is because God made a promise to David. That's what God says. He says in 1 Kings 11 that the only reason this is happening is because God had made a promise to David to preserve uh, his, um, his dynasty. That a son of David would always sit on the throne. That was God's promise. This is bad because God's covenant people are not just divided, but now they're at war. It's as if um, Reformation split into two churches, me with one group and Pastor Brett with the other, and we're, we're literally going to war with each other. Like when we see each other on the street, we're throwing hands and we're passing out pamphlets saying, don't go to Brett's church, don't go to Isaac's church because he's stinky and it's terrible there. Like this is really bad. It's division and strife, and the covenant is forgotten. The covenant falls away. It's not until a king later um, is doing some excavation in the temple and finds a book, and he's like, what's this book? It's, well, it's, it's the Bible. It's the books of Moses telling them what the covenant is, and he says, why haven't we been doing this all the whole time? And so he reinstitutes... Um, proper worship of God. He reinstitutes the covenant. There's a covenant renewal ceremony which tells us that the covenant people weren't, they didn't care. Things are really bad. And they just get worse and worse and worse. Israel crumbles. The kings are wicked and horrible. Um, Finally, Assyria comes and Carts them all off. Then Babylon comes and eats Assyria, and then comes and eats Judah. The temple is destroyed. God's covenant people are scattered. 
the land is in shatters. There's no more prosperity, not even a hint of the prosperity that they once had. And God's people who once had based their identity around the land and belonging to the Lord, temple worship, the temple's gone. The land is gone. We're in a weird country where people worship weird gods. This is bad. This is exile. They've been cast out of the presence of God. And yet, despite how terrible this all is, leading up to the exile, God was giving them a message of hope. God says, yeah, you're going to go into exile, but guess what? It's only going to be for 70 years. Why 70 years, you ask? Well, so that the land can have its Sabbaths. Because if you remember when we talked about the ceremonial law, we talked about the, the year of Jubilee. We talked about the Sabbath year. Well, Israel wasn't keeping the Mosaic law. That means they weren't observing the Sabbath years. I don't think they ever observed the year of Jubilee, which means that they owed the land rest. They owed the land 70 years of Sabbaths for their failure to keep the Sabbath. And so they go into exile for 70 years. And the Lord says, literally, he says, this is so that the land can have its Sabbaths back. This is so that the land can rest. So in Jeremiah 25, he says, The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Uh, And then 29 in Jeremiah, First, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray, and I will hear you. So 70 years have to pass, then Israel is going to pray, and God will hear, and he'll bring them back. So at the end of 70 years, Daniel, in Daniel 9, was reading the book of Jeremiah. And he says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, maybe 70 years. So I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So 70 years pass and Daniel prays and then the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, Oh, Daniel, your prayers have been heard. Seven years will pass. You'll come and you'll pray, and I will hear you. And that's exactly what happens. And now, this remnant that's going to be brought back, this people that's going to be called out of exile to return to the Lord, well, is it, are they just going to return to the same covenant? Right? Are we just going to do this all over again? Come back, redo the Mosaic Covenant, break it again? No. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The days are coming when God will make a new covenant. Not like the covenant with Moses that could be broken. This covenant that he's going to make is going to be in their hearts. Which means it's going to be, when it says, he says that he's going to write it on their hearts, it means he's going to inscribe it. He's going to put it on their hearts. So instead of them having to do it, it will already be done. It will already be in them. They will be righteous. Because their sins will be forgiven. He will remember their iniquity no more. In this covenant, this new covenant, everyone in the covenant will know God, will confess Him, will believe Him. Their sins will be forgiven and they shall be God's people. It won't be conditional on obedience anymore. It will be unconditional. So this remnant that's going to return, they're returning in hope. They're returning because they are coming back to the Lord with certainty that He is going to forgive them, that when they come back, they will never be cast out again. The exile will never happen again. They will be God's people forever. So that is what they are looking forward to as they return from exile. It takes a long time still, by human terms. Right? There's, there's about 300 years between the return from exile and Matthew 1. Long time. A long time in which there weren't any prophets. At least no actual prophets. There were books written. There's rebellions that Israel did. There's uh, the books of Maccabees where there's a few Maccabean revolutions. Um, a lot of stuff happened. But the Bible doesn't tell us any of it because it's not the point. What they're supposed to do is to sit tight and wait because the promised seed was about to arrive. They're on the cusp of it. So when John the Baptist shows up, he is the prophet announcing the, the coming seed. He says, he comes and says, I am the voice preparing the way of the Lord. He's about to show up. Get ready, because it's about to get wild. Thoughts? Questions? Tomatoes you want to throw? It's good stuff, right? So that's where we're going. Um, We're going to talk about the New Covenant next week. Um, And then I'm gone for a week. I have a wedding that I need to officiate on the 28th. So Brett will cover the 28th for Sunday school. And then June 4th and June 11th, our last two Sunday schools that we will ever do on covenant theology. Maybe. Um, And then we'll wrap up. Sound good? Okay. Um, Let's pray and uh, get ready to go before God and worship. Father in heaven, we thank you for your plan. We thank you especially that our salvation does not depend even a little bit on who we are or on what we do. It depends completely upon you. Lord, thank you for the certainty and this hope that we have. May you help us, Lord, to shed all of those fears and anxieties. May you help us to shed all of our sins from this past week, to cast all of our cares upon you as we come and worship you. 
Lord, may our hearts and our minds and our spirits be focused upon you. Thank you, God, that we get to come to your temple and to your presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.